All right. <laughs> it's funny how when, the, when there's the song but not the video, it almost seems like I should have started dancing or something. It's like, I guess I should, yeah, not going to happen. Sorry, Janine. <laughs> Hey, welcome to South Valley Community Church. We are in the last week of our series on 1 Peter called Sojourners and Exiles. And I want to start today off by telling you guys a story about an amazing woman named Florence Chadwick. Have any like big swimming fans, anybody know who she is, Florence Chadwick? This would be amazing. Really? Awesome. Nice. You're like, I heard you tell this story before, that's why. Um, <laughs> Florence Chadwick was a very acclaimed, amazingly gifted, long-distance open-water swimmer in the middle of the 20th century. So she set many world records starting when she was 10 years old and did some of the most impressive long swims on the planet. She did the English Channel both directions, first woman ever to do that. Really incredible, accomplished swimmer. And in 1952, she set out to do an incredibly difficult open water swim, the swim from um, Catalina Island to the California coast, which is 26 miles of open ocean. Amazing. I was a swimmer in high school. I, I was all about it. That was kind of like my main thing when I was in high school. And, and the thought of 26 miles of open ocean swimming is like a nightmare to me. And so she started out, and again, she was an experienced swimmer. This was not a new thing for her. She starts swimming, and she's surrounded by these boats that go alongside of you to help you if you need help, if something goes wrong. And, and also, one of the reasons the boats are there, this is my favorite thing, because, you know, this already sounds horrible enough, but one of their functions was to watch for sharks while you're swimming. So in case 26 miles of swimming through the ocean doesn't sound horrible enough, they're also keeping an eye out for, you know, tooth monster murderous beasts the whole time. So she swims for 15 hours, and at hour 15, this really thick fog comes in and makes it so she can't see anything. And she just feels discouragement kind of filling her, and she's, she can't see where she's going. And she tells the people in the boats, I don't think I can do this. I, I got to give up. And they said, no, no, keep going. Come on, you can do it. And so she pushes a little farther, keeps trying to go. But after a couple more hours, she gives up, says, I can't do it. I'm done. And they pull her into the boat. She gets in the boat. They, they travel just a little bit farther, and she realizes she was less than a mile from her destination. So she swam 25-plus miles and stopped just shy of arriving. When she got to the shore, there were, you know, press, newspaper people there waiting to get a quote because they, they thought she was going to successfully complete it. And when she got there, she said the most incredible thing. The metaphoric power of this is, is amazing. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore... I would have made it. Now, two months after saying that, she went back and tried again. She starts swimming, bright, clear day. Again, 10 plus hours go by, and the fog rolls in again. And you can imagine the terror at this point, going like, I, I, I failed last time because of this fog. And you can imagine the fear that would hit you when you realized, oh man, it's happening again. But she succeeded the second time. And when the reporters asked her, why? How did you get through this? What, you know, it was the exact same situation. Why did you make it this time? Her answer was, I imagined the shore. I pictured the shore in my mind. I held that image in my mind. And even though I couldn't see it, I kept swimming, picturing it until I got there. She went on to do it two other times. One of those two swims ended up being a world record setting time. So really incredible accomplishment and really incredible person. In this book, over and over again, Peter has described what the life of a Christian in the world should look like. 
He's called his readers, including us, sojourners and exiles, people who live in a foreign land that even, no matter how long it goes on, no matter how long you live here, know that you are, just, you are made to be in a different homeland. And this place where we are now is not our home. And as he's described what the life of an exile is supposed to look like, he's given a bunch of like encouraging things that I think make us feel good and are, and are powerful and helpful in our lives, but he's also given a bunch of directives that are bizarre and impossible sounding. Some things that sound as crazy to me as swimming 26 miles of open ocean full of sharks. Before we even look at chapter five, I wanna look briefly at a couple of examples of these kind of like impossible, bizarre sounding directives that Peter gives, because I think that they will help us to tie the whole book in this final chapter together. Right in chapter one, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's tons of verses like this in this book where Peter doesn't say, hey, when you encounter trials, you just bear down, you get tough, you put your head down and power through that trial and and you'll get through the other side of it and it'll be okay. Just bear it, get through it. He doesn't say that. He says, rejoice when you encounter trials. Who does that? Why? That's the question. Why would anyone do that? Why Why would it make sense to rejoice when you're in the middle of a trial? He also says, and this is a common thought in the New Testament, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. When someone does evil to you, when someone speaks badly of you in public, don't respond with the same thing. And again, he doesn't just say, hey, be the bigger man and overlook it. You know, someone says something bad about you, just ignore it. I'm rubber, you're glue, that whole thing. Those things hadn't been invented when he wrote this, otherwise he probably would have said that. No, I'm just kidding. He He doesn't say... Just ignore it. He says, on the contrary, bless those people. When someone does evil to you, when someone says something bad about you, you invoke God's favor on them. You speak well of them publicly. Why would anyone do that? Chapter four, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. When something horrible happens, he describes it as the fiery trial. Does not sound like a great time to me. He says, when that happens, don't even act like it's weird. Don't react like, oh man, why is this happening to me? I just got to get through it. He says, no, don't, don't think that it's strange. This is normal for life as a Christian living in exile. Instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. The sufferings of Christ, man, are, are world famous, even for people who aren't Christians. And Peter says, when you, in some measure, participate in that kind of suffering, rejoice. Don't just like, you know, grin and bear it, survive it, rejoice in it. The people who read this letter were suffering. There was persecution starting to build up. Being a Christian had an impact on their lives, on their vocations. We talked a lot about this throughout the series, and it's going to get worse historically after this letter. And so for Peter to write to people who are experiencing that and tell them, hey, when this stuff happens, rejoice. When people mistreat you, bless them. Why on earth does that advice make sense? Again, it'd be one thing if it was just like, hey, just get through it, get tough and survive. But he he tells them, no, you you rejoice in the midst of that. You respond to evil with blessing. Peter, over and over again, tells us exactly why. Back to the first example, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do you rejoice when you suffer? Because the very thing that's causing you to suffer now will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes again. You rejoice in suffering now because there is something so good coming that it will make all of these sufferings like nothing in comparison. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Why? That you may obtain a blessing. The word translated obtain there would probably be better translated inherit. It's, it's more about receiving something that you didn't earn just on the basis of, of who you are. But the point here is the same either way, that the reason that you don't respond to evil with more evil is because there is a blessing coming in the future that will make this suffering, this trial, the evil that was done to you seem like nothing. He actually goes on to give another reason in this example. He quotes from a psalm that talks about how God's eyes are on the righteous and that God's face is set against the wicked. So another answer to this question is you don't repay evil for evil because God is watching and that's his job and he'll do it someday. So you do something bizarre now because the thing that's coming in the future will make it all make sense when it arrives. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Why? In order that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You share in his sufferings now because you will share in his glory later. And so when you are brought into the sufferings of Jesus in this life, you actually can rejoice because it means in that identification with him, there is something so good coming. Christian behavior, the Christian life, only makes sense because of Christian hope. In other words, you can swim 26 miles of foggy, shark-infested waters as long as you can picture that other shore in your mind like Florence Chadwick did. The difficulties, the sufferings, the things that you go through, your ability to respond to evil with goodness and blessing is all based on your hope that God will do in the future what he said he would do. And if we don't have that hope, then the Christian life makes absolutely no sense. And so throughout this entire letter, Peter has been kind of like weaving these two threads of, of Christian steadfastness in the midst of suffering and Christians living rightly both with, with each other and with the outside world. That's one, one piece of it. And the other piece is the hope upon which all of that is based. So time and time again, you see him say, live this way, this counterintuitive, countercultural way because God is going to do something in the future that will make it all worth it, that will make it all make sense, that will make all of the suffering like nothing. And you see those two threads come together in this final chapter in, I, I believe, a, a beautiful climactic way that, that makes the whole thing kind of come together and make sense. Let's jump in. He starts with, with a word that is specifically for church leaders, so we're gonna move a little bit more quickly here. Those of us who are church leaders, you know, should pay more attention. We're, we're gonna actually, I'm going to give Greg a special seminar just on this later on. <laughs> he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter could have introduced himself 
to the elders in a way that kind of put more distance between them, that stressed the power and authority difference. He could have said like, you know, I I exhort the elders among you as a super duper elder and super apostle and founder of this whole religion, by the way. He could have like made the distance greater, said, I exhort you elders as somebody greater than you, but he doesn't do that. He illustrates what he's about to teach by saying, I exhort you elders as a fellow elder. He says, he, uses, he describes himself the same way he describes them. It's, a, it's like a collaborative term that brings them together. He's drawing them in and saying, all of us elders, we're all in this together. We're all to do the same thing. And then right there in verse one, you see those two threads of suffering and hope. He says, I am a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So right there in, in the vocation of him and the other elders is witness, bearing witness to Christ's suffering and knowing that you are a future partaker in glory that's coming later. And he describes a way of leading the church that, that is so dramatically different from the way that leaders in the world around us lead. We love, whether we think we do or not, we love authority, we love aggression, we love people who kind of like take control and push people around. We don't always like it when it's happening straight to us, but we typically like and empower those types of people. And if you look at the types of people who are in charge of the majority of of the most successful companies and organizations and stuff, you see an awful lot of that. Peter describes something completely different. He goes, you don't do this for the sake of gain, You don't do this by dominating people or pushing them down. You do this by example. You show people how to live, and you do it, again, not not by uh, compulsion, he says, not because you have to, but because you want to. And you don't do it by domineering them, but by being examples to them. The picture here is of people who have willingly submitted to the authority of the church, being led by example by people who joyfully want to lead them. It's very different. It's not the kind of leadership that will get you a promotion or a a big fancy job typically or a political position. It's totally different and it has a different goal in mind. Like everything else we've looked at, right away he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why do you not do it for earthly gain? Because there's gain coming that will outshine all of that. You don't dominate and push people down because you are not the person ultimately at the top. And so church leaders have to, and and by the way, this doesn't just mean like staff pastors, church leaders, a ton of which are are in in the congregation right now. It says church leaders, you lead with the knowledge that there is an ultimate shepherd who is above all of the earthly shepherds. And when he comes back, he'll take care of the wolves. He'll take care of the sheep. I'm convinced the only way to lead in the way that Peter is describing here is if you have a firm commitment to the belief that God is coming back, that Jesus is going to return, that the shepherd of all shepherds is coming. And that makes us do things that that don't always seem practical now. He opens it up in verse five to include the rest of the church and says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a description here of, of clothing yourself with humility. And the idea is that leaders and those they lead have a kind of mutual humility toward one another. That nobody is domineering over anybody else and no one else is kind of pridefully and arrogantly critiquing the leader. But there is a humble collaborativeness between all of them. And then he says something. It's an incredibly famous verse, but that is absolutely terrifying if you actually let yourself stop and think about it. He says, God opposes the proud 
and gives grace to the humble. If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard that a bunch of times. You might have heard your parents say that to you when you were acting proud. And you see all over the New Testament, the second half of it said in a really exciting, like positive way where Jesus will say things like, like, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the humble, the poor in spirit, the people who recognize their own kind of deficiency, their own kind of poverty. Those are the people who accept grace readily. But the proud, God opposes. I've heard this verse tons and tons of times. And probably not until this week have I ever really stopped and thought about what a dramatic thing that is to incentivize people to be humble. The creator of the universe directly opposes the proud. And this is weird because, again, if you grew up in Christian circles, we typically treat pride like it's a really safe sin to struggle with and talk about. You guys know what I mean? My fellow youth group kids will know what I'm talking about. I have like a concrete memory of being in youth group and there was sort of like a confession time happening. And so everyone's like going around saying something they're struggling with. And I'm like, well, there's no way I'm going to actually talk about what I'm actually struggling with, first of all. So that's off the table. So I either, I have two choices. I can either talk about something I was struggling with, but now I'm doing better. Or I could talk about something that's totally safe that no one will even like think badly about me. Like I'll maybe pride, I'll go with pride. Pride's one, I, and I did, I, I'm telling you, there's a true memory that when it got to me, I was like, I've just been feeling really prideful lately. And everybody's like, oh yeah, man, wow. And then they move on to the next person. I'm like, whew, got away with that one. God opposes the proud. That is a terrifying statement. We have to be on guard for this and not treat it like it's just some kind of like, oh, that's, that one's not a big deal. You know, we'll avoid all like the creepy ones that people are grossed out by and put off by, but we'll, you know, we'll stick with pride as the one that's okay to let linger in us as, as Christians. God is in opposition to pride, and pride is the root of so many other destructive behaviors. And so Peter says, this is why, especially within the church, leaders and those they lead, clothe yourselves with humility. Recognize there is a great shepherd over all of you and treat each other like the human beings that you are. Now, the rest of the the passage that we're going to look at, there's a few verses at the very end that's kind of the typical wrap-up where Peter is greeting specific people and giving some specific instructions. But the end of this section of the letter is basically an explanation of this verse, but it kind of opens up into this beautiful closing thought. And so it starts very clearly connected to this. Humble yourselves, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he says again, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We've talked a lot in this series about how Peter will reference the Old Testament without saying that he's doing that all the time. He doesn't say, as it is written. He just throws it right in there. And using this title, the mighty hand of God, if you were a first century Jewish person steeped in the Jewish story, that phrase would immediately bring to mind the Exodus account. At least six times in the Exodus account, God's power is described as his mighty hand and his what? You guys know the other half? Mighty hand and outstretched arm. How many of you know that because of the 90s worship song that has that in it? I only had one person help me last time. We're going to do it again, though. Remember? The mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We got one again. Are you kidding me? You guys knew it, but you didn't want to say it. 
Just be glad I didn't make you do the male-female call and response one that's like, humble thyself in the sight of the humble thyself. In the... You remember that one? That's a Jill that you, you remember that? It's a good one. Drew's going to close with that today. You've got like 20 minutes to figure it out. That was a total waste of time. I apologize. The mighty hand of God is meant to make you think of God's dramatic rescue of Israel from Egypt, where the most powerful nation on earth with the most well-respected, powerful pantheon of gods is toppled by Israel's God, and God rescues his people. And so Peter, writing to Christians who are suffering under the kind of like burden of, of the people around them who are beginning to oppress them, he says the same God who rescued Israel from out of Egypt That's the God who you humble yourselves under, and he will rescue again like he did then. The proud, we, they exalt, we, paging Dr. Freud, they (laughs) exalt themselves and they do it now. He says, humble yourself under God, and then the proper person, he, will exalt you at the proper time. And paired with that, interestingly, and and I think beautifully, is this verse that, it, that if you're an anxious person, you probably are familiar with. He says, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm a person, many of you know this already, I've talked about it a lot. Um, I'm a person who, who struggles with anxiety for my whole life. I've kind of had that, that built-in feeling of anxiety at the beginning of most days. And it is, it is a challenge. It's something like I can spin a problem in my mind until it grows 10 times bigger than it deserves to be. And I see some of you guys nodding who experience the same thing. This advice can come across trite if you don't really think it all the way through. It can be like, oh, just give it to God. You know what I mean? I'm sure how many of you guys have heard that at some point in your life? Get you, oh, you've got a, a concern or a worry? Give it to God. And I've always felt like, like that's, I know that's good advice, but how do I actually do that? Like, do I write it on a piece of paper and kind of like waft it up towards heaven? Like, here's my problem. You can have it. And then if it gets like taken away by wind, then it means it worked and he accepted my problem. It feels too abstract. And, and I mean, of course, there's a, a great immediate application that you pray and, and you commit the problem to God's care. That is a good thing. But, but I want to encourage those of you, just as a side note here, who struggle with anxiety to try to make this advice that Peter gives as concrete as possible. For me, that means that almost daily I force my anxieties to contend with the promises of the gospel. Whatever I'm worried about, whatever kind of self-doubt or worry about the future I'm facing, I I match that up against the truth of the gospel and ask, how does this affect my fear? So if you have a day where you are full of self-doubt and you're feeling like, oh man, I am the worst, everybody hates me, I can't believe I said that, they all think I'm da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you force that lie to confront the truth of the gospel. I'm the worst, I'm the worst, I'm the worst. No, you are a beloved son or daughter of God because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That's what's true about you. And man, you might have to do that 20 times in a day, but that's what this actually looks like in real life, I'm convinced, is you take the promises of God, you take the accomplishments of God in Christ, and you force your worries and anxieties to fight against the truth of the gospel. And I'm telling you, over and over again, the gospel will remind you of the truth. Even if you don't feel it in your heart, you can know it in, your, in the core of your being. That No, no matter how I feel about myself or about my future, God has saved me and rescued me. God loves me. And that's what Peter says. I mean, that's as, that is as stunning to me as the idea that God opposes the proud, is the idea that God, almighty God, rescuer of Israel from Egypt, creator of heaven and earth, cares for you. Anxious Christians, 
remember that. God doesn't just care for Christians collectively. Of course he does. But he also cares for you. And when you face anxieties and fears, you can remind yourself, God, I, this, this anxiety will not overwhelm the truth of the gospel, and I, I know and remember that you care for me individually. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The first half of this is something that most Christians kind of feel like is obvious. Yeah, the devil is against Christians and against the work of God. But most of us, most of us, just by virtue of the place and time that we live as modern, Western, post-enlightenment people, whether we believe that intellectually or not, have a really hard time connecting with the fact that that's true. That the suffering of Christians around the world is tied to a, this systematic spiritual evil that is in opposition to God and God's people. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And then the advice he gives for how to, how to deal with this is absolutely bizarre. It doesn't sound like it at first, but I, I think it really is. The first two things make sense. He says, resist him, firm in your faith. Stand firm in the truth that you believe when you're faced by the devil. I got that. Then he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When you experience suffering and you are, and you are confronted by the systematic evil that is in opposition to God, you remember that the same thing is happening to Christians all around the world. I do this, by the way. I, I have uh, many friends in other countries just by virtue of what my job is here as, as the missions pastor, and some of them, the things that they're suffering are so far beyond anything that I've ever had to deal with. Um, there was a, a guy I know in Tanzania who, through malaria and other medical issues over the course of his marriage, has lost six children. And, and anytime I'm suffering in any way, one of the things I remind myself is, my brother in Tanzania lost six children and he is staying faithful to God. And that works. But you have to ask, why does that work? That's bizarre. Like, comfort, when you're suffering because of your belief system, remind yourself that everyone else who shares the belief system also suffers. Why would that make you feel better? Like, uh, like just totally pragmatically on a human level, that should make you switch religions. Like, oh, you're suffering because you're a Christian? Every Christian suffers. Don't worry about it. What do you mean don't worry about it? Maybe I should jump ship then. Why? Seriously, ask yourself, why would remembering that every other Christian suffers make suffering easier for you as a Christian? It's just like everything else Peter said. He explains why in the last verse. You remember that everyone suffers who's a Christian, the brotherhood all around the world, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If the only thing that we have is what's happening here and now in this life, the suffering of other Christians should not comfort you. It should depress you and discourage you. The only reason it can encourage you 
is if you know in the deepest part of your soul that someday in the future, God himself, the one who called you to his eternal glory, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the other shore. So when you're swimming and it's, it's foggy and there are sharks, you remember, I might not be able to see it right now, but there is another shore, and that's what I'm fixing my mind on. And I have brothers and sisters around the world who are in much worse conditions than I am, and they are staying faithful because of their commitment to that same belief. If there is no hope beyond this life, being a Christian makes no sense. But if this is true, it's the only thing that makes sense. And the amount of strength that we could draw from the knowledge of this, if we could be truly, deeply convinced, is unimaginable. So the question that I think we have to really ask ourselves today, and it's a difficult one if you're, if you're honest with yourself, is where have you placed your hope? What is the thing that makes you get up and do whatever you do every day? Or the thing that has failed to make you get up and do what you do every day? What is the thing that you set your sights on that drives you and motivates you? Our world gives like a ton of different options for this, but the majority of them fall, I think, under one of two categories with a little bit of overlap. The first has to do with, with material wealth and possessions. And there's like a really extreme high-level version of that that's like, like the, the billionaire with private jets and vacation homes and owning their own islands and all of that stuff. And, and that inspires a lot of people, like that extreme version of it that like, I am going to get that private plane or I'm going to get those incredibly expensive shoes or whatever it is. You, like, you got your sights set on some material thing that you believe will make you happy when you get it. But there's a more insidious version of it that's lower down than that, that's not like the extreme extravagant thing. It's, it's when you set your hopes on the comfort and security and ease that a more normal amount of material wealth can get for you in the, in the part of the world we live in. So your hope's not necessarily on like private jets and vacation homes all over the world or something, but it's just, if I could just get to the point where I'm comfortable and safe and everything's easy and I have like tons of security, that's the thing that drives me and motivates me to work hard. On the other side, there's achievement. And just like, like material wealth, I think there's a really extreme version of this where you look at like people who have accomplished incredible things, and that could be like famous pop stars and movie stars and stuff, or the better version, people who win Nobel Peace Prizes and scientists who discover incredible things, like the, the like most amazing of all human achievements. But again, on a lower, sneakier level, there's just a desire to be thought well of by other people, to be impressive to other people, to have other people look at you or your life, your family, your accomplishments, and think that you're awesome or think that you're doing great. And again, these two things, they have some overlap between them, but depending on your personality, you probably find yourself drawn more to one or to the other. But here's the truth. It sounds obvious, but we're going to lean all the way into it. None of those things can bear your hope. None of them are strong enough to hold hope that will actually last because none of them will last. Nothing. And like your first response might be like, yeah, duh, like I know that it's just a general Christian truth that I will die and my possessions will go to somebody else. And, and that's true, but it, it goes way beyond that to like the darkest, most depressing level ever. Every single thing that you can ever own or accomplish will be gone and forgotten eventually. Everything. 
From a human perspective, every single possession you could ever acquire will eventually rust, rot, turn to dust, and be reformed into something else that someone else can strive to try to get. The author of Ecclesiastes, an amazing book of the Bible that I love, he talks about this. In his opening poem of his book, he's talking about life under the sun, meaning life here in this world. If there's no kind of spirituality, if there's no afterlife, if it's just this, he says, then life is like a river pouring into the sea. He says, nothing will be brought to remembrance. Let enough time go by, no one will remember anything about you. No one will remember your great accomplishments. No one will remember how popular or how cool you were. No one will remember how much you achieved in in business or with your family or, or anything you do in life. Even if you do something incredibly impressive, people might remember you for like a couple hundred years. But wait long enough and everyone will forget everything about you. Have a great Sunday, everybody. We're done for today. We're just going <laughs> to... I'm out of time. I had more stuff, but we're out of time, so have a... <laughs> um, but seriously, I, I had a student in a Bible college class in Tanzania who asked me... We, we went over that verse, and he was like, that's not true. Like, people remember things. And I was like, wait long enough, and no one will remember anything that someone did. The most famous people in human history are on their way to being forgotten right now. And there are an infinite number of people who we don't know anything about because time ate all of their accomplishments. So you might know something about your grandfather. You might know something about your great-grandfather. You might have done Ancestry.com, and so you know something about people even farther back than that. But go back far enough, and there will be a person before you who you know nothing about. And the same will be true for every single one of us. If this life on earth is all there is, every material possession that we long for will turn to dust and every single accomplishment that we achieve will be forgotten and will be like nothing. They can't hold your hope. Material possessions, earthly achievements cannot bear the weight of human hope to a level that will cause you to do the kind of incredible things that the New Testament is asking you to do. And Peter, over and over again throughout this book, has given us something different to put our hope on. We could look at countless examples from his letter, but I want to look at the one he starts with. This is how he opens his letter after his initial greeting. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Belief in that is the thing that can make you answer reviling with blessing, is the thing that can make you greet suffering with joy. That's the image of the other shore that can make you swim through any kind of foggy, shark-infested water. He says, it's a resurrection It's an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading. It will not wear out. It will not be forgotten. It won't turn to rust. He says it's being kept in heaven for you, for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's coming. Brothers and sisters, the only way that we can possibly have a hope of doing any of the incredible things asked of us in the New Testament is to have that be the thing that we set our sights on. That be the image of the shore that we hold in our minds when things get difficult. You want to endure suffering with joy? You have to believe that's coming. 
You want to answer reviling and evil with blessing instead of more of the same evil and reviling? You have to believe that's where you're headed. And guys, there, there are times when, when it fades and gets easier and harder, and, and, and people in here who have been Christians a lot longer than me could probably tell story after story of times when everything has been really dim and you can barely hold on to the tiniest bit of faith that any of this stuff is true. But if you have that kernel of belief that that's where history is headed and that God is for you and that God cares about you, and that if you are, are putting your faith, if you're entrusting yourself in Christ and his finished work on the cross, then there is a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time and an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading. That can propel you into an entirely different kind of life. And so it's like, in some ways, the, the simplest application ever for a sermon, um, and, and it's, it's how we want to kind of wrap this whole series up, it's to encourage you to do the things that Peter said. Live like you're exiles in a foreign land. We're not Babylonians. And that doesn't mean to like, to like burn the city down. Jeremiah told the actual exiles, seek the peace and prosperity of the city that you're exiled in. But you keep in mind that this is not my home, that I have a good king who's coming back for me, that I'm gonna be rescued from this place just like Israel was rescued from Egypt. And, and so I live in Babylon in a different way than I would if I was a citizen here, and I live in a different way than I would if I thought this life was the only life I ever got. Fix your eyes on the hope promised to you in Christ and live like exiles in a strange land. We're going to take communion together. The, the ushers are going to start passing that out. And as Drew mentioned earlier, um, Today is Palm Sunday. It's a really important day in the church calendar, the Sunday before Easter. You guys, some of you, um, I think we ran out, but many of you um, received a palm frond cross. And it's a really important reminder for us, and it fits perfectly with what we're talking about. It commemorates the day when Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And in that story, Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and as he's coming in, the people of Jerusalem come out to greet him waving palm branches, these symbols of victory in the first century Greco-Roman world. Some of them are waving them and shouting, Hosanna, save us now, son of David, giving him the messianic title, son of David, save us, with joy and cheers. They lay down the palm fronds and their coats in front of his donkey, a way of showing the highest honor to who they think is, is the arriving champion who's going to defeat Rome. And so their hope, their expectation, is that Jesus is going to roll into Jerusalem, kill his enemies, kick out Rome, and reestablish Israel. So they say, yes. They welcome him with cheers and shouting and symbols of victory. But Jesus doesn't do anything that they expect him to do. In fact, he starts doing things that make them think, not only is he not the Messiah, we thought he's, he's, a tr he's trouble, he's dangerous. And so very shortly after, the same people who cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, cry out, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And Jesus goes to his death. And it's in that death, in that resurrection that comes three days later, that all of our hope is grounded. Why can you be right with God? Because the son of God didn't come to destroy or kill his enemies. He came to make a way through his own life for his enemies to become sons and daughters of God. Peter, in chapter 3, said that he suffered in the flesh to bring us to God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So we take communion for, for a number of reasons. 
one of the things that it does is it stretches time. It's almost like it brings that past day 2,000 years ago forward to where we are now. And so we are brought to the cross of Christ in, in this incredible remembrance of what he did. But when Paul describes communion, he also talks about how it brings the future back to meet us. He says this, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is an end goal to this thing that we're doing right now. We proclaim the victorious death of Jesus until he returns. And brothers and sisters, when he returns, some of us will be waving palm branches and some of us won't. And so I encourage you, take that palm cross, put it somewhere prominent in your home this week as we lead up to Easter and remember that the God who came in to Jerusalem on that day 2,000 years ago, he's coming again and on that day, everyone will bow. Some as faithful servants, some as conquered enemies. And so those of us who bow now, we say, Jesus, come soon. We want you back. And when you come, we'll be there laying palm branches at your feet to welcome you in, to wipe every tear, to correct every injustice, to clean up this place that we have been living in for all this time that is so messed up. And we long for that day when Jesus restores creation and brings in that new creation that Christians have been hoping for for 2,000 years. So as we do this, allow time itself to, to stretch in two directions. Be brought to the sacrificial death of Jesus and be brought to the triumphant return of Jesus. And may we be among the people who, when he returns, say, yes, Hosanna, the king is back. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup together. Father, you said that you would not leave us alone. And your son Jesus, in his, in his final commandment to his disciples, said, I am with you always till the end of the age. Lord, in this room, um, there are people all over the map in terms of uh, what kind of situation they're in. Some people have beautiful, clear days and that, they're, that they're swimming on. They can see the shore. It looks clear. It looks like, man, life right now almost looks like that heavenly shore. Then there are people who are just in such deep, dark fog that it's hard to even imagine that there could be something good coming. For all of us, Lord, wherever we are, fill us with a sense of confidence in your return, that we would long for your return, that we would look to the future and see a day when, when you right every wrong, correct every injustice. And Lord, as we await that day, help us to live faithfully. Help us to live in such a way that we give the world around us a preview of that other shore. That we give them just a glimpse, just a t the tiniest demonstration of what it will be like when you are king on earth as you are in heaven. And Lord, as we wait, make us faithful. Remind us that this place is not our home and that you have something in store for us that will make every bit of suffering, every bit of difficulty, and every bit of pain feel like nothing by comparison. And that the riches and accomplishments 
of the powerful and famous in this world will look like cheap toys in comparison to the rewards that you have. Motivate us by that. We love you. We thank you for the gift of your son. Make us more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.